song thank you katie and k listeners for joining me on the meet in the middle show where we share dialogue on complex issues with local thought leaders with differing opinions the hope is for listeners to gain new perspective and empower freedom of expression i'm dan richardson and today's topic is has the supreme court lost its way or is it right on course my guest today is bill mcswain bill's joining us on the phone and we are in the process of bringing him in thanks to hattie I am going to introduce Bill while we get uh, get him on the line. Bill is currently an attorney with the Dwayne Morris Law Firm in Philadelphia. He's argued and won several high-profile constitutional cases. He's a former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, a position he held from April of 2018 until January of 2021, overseeing one of the largest U.S. attorney's offices in the country, headquartered in Philadelphia. After returning to private law practice, Bill then ran for the Republican nomination for governor of Pennsylvania in 2022, finishing third in a nine-candidate race. Bill graduated from Yale University, cum laude, after which he spent four years in the U.S. Marine Corps and as an officer and platoon commander, and then graduated from Harvard Law School, where he was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. And I would be remiss to state that despite this incredibly impressive bio, his biggest claim to fame is that he's the nephew of my father-in-law, Frank McSwain, and the cousin of my wife, Holly. So as soon as we bring Bill on, I will remind him that uh, he, it is an honor to have him on my show. Um, okay. uh, I wanted to talk about the Supreme Court this month because the, topics, the topic is just so relevant. There's a lot of discussion about... Um, well, all kinds of cases, uh, the makeup of the court, and uh, it just seemed relevant to have that have that discussion. So today, as we uh, once again, once we get Bill in, we're going to be talking about uh, originalism, uh, the concept of interpreting the founders original intent in the writing of the constitution and how does that apply today we're going to be talking about uh the notion of court packing and should we expand the court or should we not uh what are the pros and cons of that uh and we'll talk about a couple of cases as well um, because it'll be useful to um, use those cases to discuss these other topics that we just mentioned um Um, I should also say that uh, some folks have said that they'd love to be able to provide feedback about the show. So I just want to tell uh, everyone that my email address is richardson at roth.net. So feel free to email me ideas on the show. Um, And I'm Bill, are you there? 
I am here. Hi, Dan. All right. Um, great. The magic happens. Um, Bill, I apologize for that snafu. Um, while you were on hold, I took the liberty of introducing you to our audience. So they've heard all about you, and I can Great. tell uh, that they're excited to be here. Um, but I wanted to reiterate just what an honor it is and pleasure to have you on my show. So welcome, Bill. Thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, and thanks for being willing to model respectful freedom of expression that I believe is uh, vital to the success of our country. I, I need mm-hmm. to say that it's, it's challenging to find people willing to do that. So again, thank you. My pleasure. And before we dig into the Supreme Court, uh, you know, you're a rare guest with an amazing amount of experience. And I was wondering if you could just quickly share what's it like to be or, you know, anything you want to share about being U.S. attorney and running for governor. Anything come to mind that was remarkable through those times? Wow. Well, um, those were two fun things to do. I am a sort of prosecutor at heart in the sense that um, I had a couple stints where I worked for the government and um, worked to try to make communities safer. And so I certainly enjoyed being U.S. attorney because I was involved or in charge of a very large area, basically Philadelphia and the surrounding suburbs. It has about six million people in it, and one of the larger U.S. attorney offices in the country. So I felt like I had the opportunity to to do a lot of good there, and I found the job very rewarding. And then my first foray into actual politics, electoral politics, as you mentioned, I, I ran in the primary for governor of Pennsylvania last year. I did not win, but I learned a lot from the experience, and um, I was hoping that it would continue my journey in public service. Um, that one election didn't work out the way I wanted to be, but it won't be my last run, and my heart is in public service, and so I look forward to hopefully future opportunities to serve. Awesome. Yeah, my hunch is, is that it just simply postponed it. Um, so... <laughs> um, and so today's show is about the Supreme Court, how it works, what's working well, what's not, and why. Um, the most common topic in recent months um, and years has been the makeup of the court and the fact that it now has a six to three conservative majority. That's a big deal, and it's hard to deny that it's already had a significant impact. But there are many other facets of the court that are equally impactful that are not typically being discussed uh, in the media. And so that's what I wanted to dig into today. Um, But, Bill, as you and I discussed, we thought it uh, might be a good idea to give kind of an overview or, or, you know, the the key points of how the Supreme Court works so the listeners have kind of a basis. Um, Bill, are you up for doing that? Sure. So the Supreme Court is pretty unique. First of all, there are nine justices on the Supreme Court. They are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. So if you're going to win a Supreme Court case, you have to get at least five of the nine votes. Uh, a 5-4 decision, of course, is the closest decision. But one of, the, one of the things that's really interesting about the Supreme Court is that they only really take the cases that they want to take. They have this process called a, a grant of certiorari where the court gets lots of litigants asking them to take their case, but they only grant cert, uh, the short uh, form of it, they grant cert in a a small number of cases. And this particular Supreme Court has really limited 
the number of cases that it's looked at. The, the cases have kind of gotten less and less over the years, and now it's actually less than 100 cases typically a year. And so that really raises the stakes in a lot of ways because there's so few cases that make it to the Supreme Court. You have cases at the trial level, the U.S. District Court level, and, and the federal system, and then you have an intermediate appellate level, which is the circuit court level, and then cases get appealed from there to the Supreme Court. But again, only about 100 a year get taken. And, and the court will look at various reasons for taking a case, but there's generally two main reasons for the court to take a case. One is if there's just such an important federal interest or federal right, federal issue in the case that the court just has to take it because it's it's really just flat out so important. And the second reason is if there's a what's called a circuit split in the lower courts. Like say um, that courts in a Western Circuit, for example, have come out with a decision on an issue one way and courts in an Eastern Circuit have come out differently, it doesn't really make sense for the law to be different, the federal law to be different in, on important issues in different parts of the country where um, the circumstances of where you live is going to determine uh, what the particular rule is. If you're talking about federal law, important issues of federal law, it really should be uniform nationwide. So as these cases bubble up to the circuit level, and sometimes courts will disagree with each other on that intermediate appellate level, which is called the circuit level, the Supreme Court will step in in those cases and come up with a decision that applies for the entire country. So that's something that's something that, that not everybody understands, that the Supreme Court is very selective about the cases it takes. It only looks at a handful of cases uh, every year. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't, therefore, you don't have a right to be in the Supreme Court. It's, it's almost like a privilege. I see. Uh, well, that's really helpful background. Uh, I, I really had no idea how that worked until uh, I did some research for the show. So I, I appreciate mm -hmm. that background. And we'll dig in a little bit more, possibly, as we talk about some of the questions. Anything else you want to share before I, I dig into questions? No, let's go ahead and, and uh, jump in. All right. Um, so while we are uh, waiting for you to get on, I, I informed the listeners that we we dig into the concept of originalism. And mm -hmm. originalism sounds, it seems black and white. You know, we're going to interpret the Constitution just as the founders uh, wanted it. Um, my experience is it isn't quite so black and white. But before we go there, um, would you be willing to share your definition or your interpretation of that concept of originalism? Sure. I think originalism is really just uh, one type of the idea that the rule of law is supposed to control in our country. And it really can be, I think, summed up in a quote. Uh, John Adams, our second president, um, purported to say that, that uh, because we have a republic, we have a government of laws and not men. And to put a more um, modern spin on that, it would be we have a government of laws and not people. Uh, but, you know, he said of not men. The idea is that it, doesn't it shouldn't matter who necessarily is president or in the Congress or even wearing the judicial robe. It's supposed to be the law that 
uh, is paramount, and people have to respect the law. And if the law is always changing, of course the law can change if, if um, Congress enacts a different statute and a different law and the president signs it. Nobody's saying you, you can't have changes in the law that way. But as, as a sort of judicial matter, if the law is always changing depending on the composition of the Supreme Court, then that makes it seem like we have a government of men or a government of people, and the law is subject to the whims of men or whims of people, as opposed to being a government of laws, which are supposed to be universal across across time. So the idea behind originalism is the people who, who, who really um, like originalism and promote relig- originalism is that the law is not supposed to be shifting and changing depending on who's on the Supreme Court. The laws were enacted by, you know, originally, and you're talking about sort of the Constitution and, and, and the Bill of Rights. They were enacted by a group of people and uh, approved by a group of people and accepted by the country. And therefore, it, we should be going with that original meaning and not changing the meaning of the law over time, depending on who happens to be wearing the judicial robes. Um, that's sort of the idea behind it, that it's more principled and it's more universal to appeal to originalism as opposed to um, having the law shift every few years um, according to the the whims of the individual justices. And if the law is going to change according to the whims of the individual justices, it also has an anti-democratic flavor to it. Because, you know, who are these nine people to decide uh, these cases and be changing the law based on their own, uh, arguably, their own biases their own, or their own desires to see the, the law come out a certain way when these folks haven't even been elected in the first place. They've just been appointed. And so the people who push originalism would say, well, it's a more principled way and it's a more neutral way. It's actually a more democratic way to decide cases to be moored to this original meaning of the Constitution as opposed to have it shifting all the time. Now, people on the other side would say, well, that's just not realistic. Um, you know, first of all, the, the, the Constitution is a general document. It's not a very specific document, and so there's lots of gaps in the Constitution, and, and they would say that the brilliance of the Constitution is it is very general. In some ways, it's very vague. And so it's the job of judges to come in there and interpret the Constitution in a way that evolves over time and evolves to take um, into consideration our changing society and the changing world that we live in and changing technology and everything else. And so you can't be sort of stuck in the 1700s when you're interpreting the Constitution. And, and that's also a powerful, powerful argument. So there's this back and forth about originalism and, and not originalism that I think is kind of endlessly fascinating. Yeah, that was a great explanation. Do you consider yourself, granted you're not a judge, but do you consider yourself in line with the originalist line of thinking or approach? I wouldn't call myself a strict originalist, but I'm definitely someone who um, respects and promotes the rule of law. And the rule of law, I'd say originalism, fits into this overarching idea of the rule of law as one of the theories that is designed to promote the rule of law. In, in my 
in my professional life, in my work life, I'd say that my religion is <laughs> adherence to the rule of law. I think that the rule of law, this idea that we are a government of laws and not men, is actually the underpinning of our entire society. Um, everything that we hold dear, I think, can be can be traced to that. And if we have uh, leaders, judges, politicians, public officials, leaders who are um, faithful to the rule of law, that's good for everybody. And and being faithful to the rule of law means that there are going to be some times, let, let, let's say you're a judge and you're faithful to the rule of law, that's going to mean that sometimes when you're making a, a decision, you're not going to like the outcome. Because you may want a case to come out a certain way, you may prefer certain policies, but um, the law is not always going to dictate that, unless you're manipulating the law and sort of changing it through the prism of your own political views. So if you care about the rule of law, whether you're a prosecutor or a judge or a, a legislator, um, there are some times where decisions are going to come down where you don't think that they're the best decision in the big picture, but, um, but you have to accept those decisions if you are going to accept the idea that the rule of law is paramount. We're going to get into um, that, your later comment in just a minute. Um, but there's there's a couple of questions on originalism, and and I and I think you hit on the topics, and I just want to dig a little bit diff, uh, a little deeper. Um, from my own personal perspective, and knowing my own biases and how I interpret the things I hear, isn't it quite possible that any interpretation of the law, whether it's originalist or not, is more likely to reflect the interpreter's own bias, in this case the, the Supreme Court justices, more than reflect what the framers were thinking, you know, more than two centuries ago? Yes, and that, that's certainly the, the um, you put your finger on a key part of the debate, because the, the people who reject originalism, or, or at least don't want to be slaves to originalism, would say that the originalists are just not being realistic about the human element. There's always the human element, and that even the originalists are going to bring their human element into the equation, and um, they're going to be affected by their own experiences, their own biases, and um, they're going to want decisions to come out a certain way. Um, I would say that there's some truth to that. I mean, everything that's being done in our government is being done by people, we're all fallible. We all um, bring to whatever we're doing our own experiences and our own way of seeing the world. But I do think there's some, there is some objective value to originalism, and certainly there's a, some objective value to respecting the rule of law and being committed to the rule of law, because everything is a matter of degree. If, 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 you, if your approach to judicial decision-making is, ah, this is all just people interjecting their biases into things, so I'm just going to go wild with my own biases. That is not, in my view, a responsible way of making um, judicial decisions. Whereas if you say, well, okay, I acknowledge that there's some bias here, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my very best to tie myself to the mast and decide this case in the most neutral way possible, the fairest way possible. 
I think you're a better judge when you do that, and you're a better public official when you respect the rule of law that way. So everything's a matter of degree. So neither side is perfect, but I think that when you when you attempt to tie yourself to a, a neutral, principled standard, you are a better judge. You are making decisions that are more fair. Whereas if you just sort of throw in the towel and say, well, it's all human beings doing this, so let's just have at it, well, then your bias is going to run wild, and you're not going to be making responsible judicial decisions. You're not going to be making responsible decisions as a public official, whether you're a judge or not. So I think there is some, that's a long answer to your question, there is some value to it, um, to looking for these neutral principles, but at the same time, an honest person would say, yeah, you're right. It's all people that are making these decisions, so no system is going to be perfect. Yeah, and I think, you know, so you could say, well, you know, that's that's human nature and we move on. Um, I I thought it was interesting that, the at least from my research, the concept of originalism was has really been born in our lifetimes, mine and, and yours, within the last 50 years. Um, and in my in my efforts to unpack the Dobbs case, um, I thought it was interesting that uh, the Wall Street Journal, Justice Thomas, Justice Barrett, all made the case that that decision was an originalist's perspective. And then I listened to another uh, conservative law scholar um, who said, no, I don't think that was an in- originalist interpretation. So, you know, whether you agree with Dobbs or not, um, there was disagreement from sort of the same side of the aisle as to whether it was originalist or not. And to me that, for especially for a case that is as consequential as that, um, that just gives me concern. So there's, there's really not a question there, but if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, it might depend on how far back you go with the originalism. I mean, the, um, the justices that you mentioned at first who were in the Dobbs majority would probably go back earlier to the founding of the Constitution, maybe all the way back to the beginning. And maybe someone who would say, well, you know, it's not consistent with originalism. They might be, they might be looking at um, a constitution that's a little younger, um, something pre Roe v. Wade, but something that um, may have may have evolved a bit. I mean, that may be one reason why you have um, two different camps who are both claiming to be originalists coming up with different conclusions. It's possible they might be defining originalism a little bit differently. Okay, fair enough. Um, Maybe to that point, to that point, and to address something you said earlier, um, as I think about originalism, I think well, I I agree with you, Bill, that uh, you know the Constitution is there, and if we don't like it, we need to change it. Um, I would also argue, though, that especially uh, within the last decade, uh, but even you know maybe in in my lifetime it's become functionally impossible to change the Constitution. And therefore, what we are saying is we're willing to hold to the value system of our founders of 200 years ago until we're able to create a miracle and change the Constitution. And I'm being a little sarcastic there. There are ways to change it, and we have made those changes. But um, I guess my question is, do you think it's just— in in certain circumstances, is it okay to withhold or compromise a person or a class of per- people's rights? 
in the absence of a properly functioning democracy where we can't change the Constitution. Um, and that might, you know, that's kind of rhetorical, but it's a dilemma I, I wrestle with. Yeah, it's, um, I guess I would respond this way. Um, it is true that it's very difficult to amend the Constitution. We haven't had a lot of amendments over the, the, um, over the course of our, our country's history. But keep in mind, though, that most of the laws that we live under are not constitutional laws. The Constitution creates some broad um, guardrails about things. Most of the laws that, that we live under and we deal with are statutes. That are things that Congress um, has the power to enact laws. They do it all the time. You know, they've got to be passed by the House and the Senate, and the president has to sign them. And then there's regulations that go with that statute where the administrative state can um, add its own imprint to the laws. But most most of the heavy lifting when it comes to the, the laws in our um, society is, is done through the legislative process. The, now, the, the, the things that the Constitution touches on are very, very important. I'm not trying to diminish the importance of the, the Constitution, but it's really just sort of guardrails. And I would argue, as someone who uh, I consider myself a, a fan of the Constitution, that when the Constitution you know, was enacted over 200 years ago, they got a lot of things right. They got a lot of things right that are universal, and um, and and that we should um, preserve and protect that Constitution. And when we when we respect the Constitution and live under the Constitution, um, we're do, we're doing so in a way that, that that serves people's interests. And if there's specifics that we think need to be changed, we don't necessarily need a constitutional amendment to change that. And maybe that's a, a way of segue into a little bit to the abortion debate. Um, the, the Constitution, the originalists say there's no constitutional right to abortion in the Constitution. Um, Roe v. Wade established that right, and then 50 years later it was reversed. But it doesn't mean that abortion is going to be illegal all over the country. The, the Dobbs Court returned the question to the states. But it doesn't have to just remain in the states. It's also something that Congress could take action on. And so it's possible that Congress could enact a statute that guarantees those rights in a way that would not require the same kind of octane to have a constitutional amendment. So we do have mechanisms where rights can be protected um, through the legislative process that are not nearly as difficult to enact as a constitutional amendment, which you rightly point, point out is, is very difficult to do. Fair enough. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we'll talk uh, talk about Congre Congress's role in the future or later in the show. Mm -hmm. um, I want to shift gears a little bit. In our earlier conversation, you offered your opinion that courts should be, and I'm paraphrasing here, but they should be process driven. And you alluded to this a minute ago. They should be process-driven rather than results-oriented. So, you know, mm -hmm. they should be apolitical, if you will. Um, and I'll do my best to quote my uh, former president, this time Hamilton, who stated, courts have neither force nor will, only judgment. Uh, and I think you would probably endorse that statement. So my question is, has the current Supreme Court been successful at this? 
Well, I would say that the court has gotten a lot of attention lately, mostly because of the Dobbs decision. And so I think the public thinks of the court as more political and more of exercising will as a court, as, as opposed to exercising judgment, as as Hamilton put it, than it has in the past. Um, and its reputation has, has, has taken some hits because of that. Um, but I do agree with 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 um, Hamilton's um, formulation there that you know what I think what he was getting at is that the court is in some ways a very anti-democratic institution because those judges are not elected; they're appointed. Uh, there's only a handful of them, and so they should be exercising judgment and enforcing the laws that the legislature has enacted and not really taking the law into their own hands and exercising will. Now, people will look at the Dobbs decision, a lot of people um, who don't like the result of the decision will say, this is this is the court exercising will and not judgment. They took away this right that has existed for 50 years. And um, they shouldn't have done that because, uh, and some of them, uh, they believe maybe some of the, the justices who voted for that opinion were uh, not transparent about about their intentions when they were going to confirmation hearings, and you know there's there's lots of arguments on that side. But the counterpoint would be the court in the Dobbs decision sort of restored things to the way they should have been because Roe v. Wade was a mistake, where in 1973 when uh, I believe Roe was decided, that was an egregious example of justices exercising will and not judgment, because that right, they would say, exists nowhere in the Constitution. And so they were going, but it's, it's, a, it's a difficult and sort of fascinating debate right now, because I can certainly see that argument, because um, it's a bit of a stretch to say that the words of the Constitution uh, protect a, a right to abortion through it's through a right to privacy as developed up in, in, in cases before Roe v. Wade. Um, but even if even if you believe that, which I think people of good uh, good faith do do believe that, still this right had existed for 50 years, and so people have ordered their lives around that. Or there's an expectation. There's this idea of a starry decisis, something that's already decided. And so courts don't usually go in and reverse themselves because that's very disruptive. Um, so you, you've got that inner, inner place. You, you have to, I think when you think about the Dobbs decision and you think about Roe v. Wade, you have to consider all those different perspectives. And I think all those perspectives have, have value. Um, and uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of gray area there. I'm going to, Take a quick break and say it's the bottom of the hour. It's 4.30. You're listening to the Meet in the Middle show on KDNK, Community Access Radio. I'm the host, Dan Richardson, and my guest is Bill McSwain. And today's show is Has, has the Supreme Court Lost Its Way or Is It on the Right Course? Um, thank you for that, uh, Bill. It's a, it's, it's a, hard, it's a hard issue. Um, kind of along those lines, and you were alerting, alluding to this earlier about the number of cases the court has taken historically versus this year. My understanding is the term for those are essentially merit cases. Um, and, and then this is where my understanding fades a little, so you might have to correct me. 
But then there's also what I've heard referred to as emergency appeals, emergency relief, and some have referred to that as the shadow docket, the the, the cases that aren't necessarily um, you know, prominent cases that are argued, but there are decisions that get made. Um, is, is that a fair explanation, or is there anything more that you feel like you need to add to explain that better? Well, that's right. The, the, the merits cases are the ones that the court grants cert on, and you need four out of the nine votes of the justice to grant cert on a case where a case is going to go up to the Supreme Court and get full briefing um, argument. It's going to get the full attention. There's going to be a, an opinion written on it. There are other things that the court does that are not as extensive as the merits cases. Um, there are 11, for example, there's 11 circuits that in the country that the, the, the country sort of carved up into these 11 different circuits. And each circuit has a judge assigned to it. I mean, 9 to 11 is not perfect, but they work it out with the numbers, where each judge um, or each circuit has a judge or justice assigned to it. And there will be sometimes emergency motions and appeals and things and clarifications asked of the court. And sometimes that one judge or that one justice will, will decide that depending on the nature of the, of the question. Um, so there, there are things that, that happen that way. There are not full merits cases where, where the court, um, disposes of issues, but my understanding is that when that happens, it doesn't have um, the kind of, it doesn't have the kind of uh, effect that a merits decision has. It doesn't have the kind of, um, it doesn't have the kind of weight and it doesn't have uh, the kind of future effect. You can't like cite to that and say, well, such and such, you know, one justice decided it's something this way, so therefore it should be decided that way in a merits case. You need to have the full court weigh in in order for something to have the full authority in the future and have somebody cite to it. But there's, but there are motions and things that get dealt with, uh, emergency type uh, things uh, and appeals and the like that that you alluded to that do get handled in addition to 100 or so merits cases a year. That's that's good clarification. Um, I didn't realize that they couldn't be cited. Um, nonetheless, I, I think that this issue is one of the more troubling ones for me. Uh, and I, I learned that our Solicitor General, essentially the federal government's attorney for Supreme Court cases, during the 16 years of the Clinton and Obama administration, um, requested that those emergency relief uh, cases eight times or once every two years, um, which is, you know, that seems um, reasonable. But within the four years of Trump, and this isn't a criticism of Trump, it's just pointing statistics out. But during his four years, it happened 41 times or once every 1.2 years. And so my concern and my question is, um, is it troubling that the rate of those requests have increased? And maybe it doesn't matter who the president is, that that, that just um, that rate is increasing. And even more recently, uh, um, it seems that those decisions, those emergencies, emergency appeals are going unsigned and unexplained. So the, the court is weighing in on something but they're really not explaining themselves. Perhaps more importantly, they're not giving guidance to the lower courts of why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and that, to me, doesn't seem very transparent uh, nor democratic. But I'm, 
I'm curious to your opinion on that. I wasn't aware of those specific numbers. Um, I think it, it has to be taken on a case-by-case basis. I'm not sure why there was so many of those. I don't know, I know exactly how they came out. Uh, I imagine a lot of them were denied. Um, it could be because maybe the Trump solicitor general was more litigious than predecessors, but also could be that you know the Trump administration also had a lot of legal challenges to what it was doing. Mm-hmm. And there were, you know, a, a very litigious um, public interest groups and groups like the ACLU and a lot of the state attorneys general around the, the country were, were suing the Trump administration left and right. And so it's possible. I mean, I haven't looked at the I haven't looked at the underlying issues in the 41 that you mentioned, but just off the top of my head, it's quite possible that that number was higher than prior years because the Trump administration was fighting off an onslaught of litigation that President Obama and um, and his predecessors never had to deal with. I don't know. I'm just okay. sort of speculating. But um, it can be frustrating when you have an, uh, an emergency appeal or uh, some sort of motion you're bringing to the Supreme Court for expedited review and you just get it denied. Or you, or you usually get it denied. You don't, you don't usually get a yes. And you don't have any explanation. Um, but I think the court would would justify that by saying we only give explanations when the full court has the opportunity to weigh in and when there's full briefing and full analysis of all the issues. Okay. Like, we're not in the business of, um, you know, fast food opinions. And I think that's probably the right approach okay. in the long in the long run, but it can be but it can be frustrating certainly in the short term like you said and people don't even know why something was denied or or why something was granted. Um so <laughs> that's but those are interesting numbers that that you cited I was not aware of that. Yeah, well, and I I appreciate your perspective on it. I figured that there it's circumstantial, but um again to me it was a worrying trend the other statistic was there were four injunction pending appeals during the first 15 years of the Roberts court, um, four in those first 15 years and six within, uh, the first seven months since, um, Justice Barrett came on board. So again, it could be circumstantial, but, um, it's the trends I'm concerned about. Mm -hmm. Um, so the other thing you and I talked about was this and, and is being talked about, uh, and has been talking about, uh, ever since uh, Biden took office, uh, is this notion of court packing. And after Justice Barrett was seated and Biden was elected, um, that talk just really increased. So should we increase the Supreme Court beyond nine justices? We haven't always had nine justices, but we've had nine justices for, I, I think, over 100 years. I think sometimes it's been less, sometimes more. Um, and so it's referred to as court packing. My understanding is the Constitution is technically silent silent on the issue. Um, but what's your, what's your take on the idea? My take, first of all, preliminarily, is that the number of justices is not determined by the, the Constitution. It's a creature of statute. So it doesn't always have to be nine. It could be a different number. So the idea that you could have a different number than, than nine is not on its face a crazy idea. But when you want to change the number from nine, 
in order to punish the current justices by adding justices to a court that is going to vote in the way that you want them to vote to overturn decisions that you don't like, that's court packing. And court packing is bad. And I'll tell you why it's bad. First of all, there's a history of the idea of court packing in the past where um, President uh, you know, FDR, Roosevelt, was concerned about the Supreme Court getting in the way of some of his social programs, and he came up with the idea of packing the court, and uh, the public didn't like it, and he backed down on that. And then we've had more discussions lately, I think in my lifetime, there's probably been more discussions about court packing in response to, to Dobbs and, and other decisions than, than we've had at any other time in my life, but, but, but that is a bad idea, and I'll tell you why. Because one of the cornerstones of the federal judiciary is the idea that um, the, the judges, federal judges have lifetime tenure. They are appointed for life. And the reason for that uh, is that uh, we want to um, have judicial independence. We want judges to be able to come up with the decisions that they think are best, you know, whether they're originalist judges or other types of judges, the judges that they think is best without um, being punished for it. Right? If you're elected as a judge and you issue a decision and you could be thrown out of office because you're going to lose your next election, like the way it happens in a lot of um, state court systems, then judges aren't necessarily going to follow the law or issue a decision that they think is faithful to the law if they think that decision is going to be unpopular because they're thinking about the next election. So a bedrock principle of the federal judiciary is judicial independence. And the best way to have judicial independence is to have life tenure so that there is no negative uh, consequences to any particular decision. As long as a decision is made in good faith, you know, the judge is not doing anything unethical or something impeachable. Well, if you make a decision as a Supreme Court justice, and then that decision is basically overturned through a court packing plan, you are being punished for the decision that you've made. That is contrary to judicial independence. That is contrary to the the bedrock idea of that the rule of law is promoted best by having uh, justices and, and, and lower federal court just, judges who can make decisions uh, without being so worried about public opinion and instead focusing on fidelity to the law. So in my view, that's why court packing is, is bad, or the idea of court packing is bad, because it is an assault on judicial independence. But that doesn't mean that that forever there has to be nine justices on the Supreme Court. Um, so it really comes down to intent. Are we trying to change the number of justices for some legitimate reason, or are we trying to do it in order to pack the court? If it's to pack the court, I'm, I'm against it for the reasons I described. That's a good clarification um, of the term court packing, and it's different than just simply expanding the the court. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to admit that uh, when I first heard the concept and started thinking about it, I thought it was a a an idea worth pursuing for the the purposes of ex- expanding the court to be similar to other courts where they may have twelve justices or or more, um, not necessarily to address the current. Um, issue of not getting the the um, the rulings we want, um, mm-hmm. but in my research, I have to say that there are. 
I, I don't think even if even if I was uh, wanting different outcomes, um, and and the, what I've heard in different debates, I don't think court packing is the best strategy um, to really uh, get the desired result. And so I think these other things we're talking about in Congress uh, holding. Uh, or, or involving themselves more as they as the Constitution guides them, I think, is a better approach um, mm-hmm. to addressing these issues. So, yeah, and I think that the idea of court packing drives the current justices crazy, no matter what their political persuasions are. I, mean, I think Justice Ginsburg, for example, before she passed away, I mean, I think she came out against it pretty strongly. I mean, just the, the court packing is kind of like a, a slur in the in the legal community. <laughs> No matter, no matter what your your background. So I, I hope we don't go down that path. Yeah, yeah, and I and the other more liberal uh, legal scholars uh, I've I've heard uh, agree with Justice Ginsburg. So um, anyway, doesn't make it right, but uh, um. So and and I mentioned I mentioned Congress, um, and again, my understanding is that. Congress does have the ability to require the court to take on, I don't know if it's specific cases or certain cases about particular issues, and I'm, I'm backtracking here a little bit, but um, uh, and I'll, uh, uh, another benefit from that, from the justices taking on more cases, is you may eliminate those emergency appeals. Um, but is that I mean, maybe you could explain that more, or say whether it's a good or bad idea for Congress to be more involved with um, insisting the court take on certain cases or, or certain uh, issues? Yeah, I don't think Congress does that a lot. Um, I have to think about a little bit more about the the limits of their authority. They generally don't do that, and I, I think that it's sort of rooted in the idea of that we have three co-equal branches of government. You've got the executive. The, the president and the and administration. You've got the the legislative Congress, and then you have the courts, the judiciary, and they're supposed to be co-equal. You know, one is not supposed to be more powerful than the other. And there's the balance. There's the checks and balances, and there's the the beauty of the of the Constitution, which uh, tries to disperse power throughout those branches instead of one branch becoming too powerful. So. I think that the Supreme Court would really uh, recoil at the idea of Congress dictating that they have to take a certain number of cases or they have to take a certain class of cases. Um, And so I don't really see that happening. Um, But it does raise the the, the further issue of uh, judicial review in the sense that who has the final say on the meaning of the Constitution, and if we're supposed to have co-equal branches here, you would think, well, they all have, they all have uh, a say in it. But actually, the way it's evolved, when it comes to interpreting the Constitution, the Supreme Court has the final say, and that goes all the way back to almost the, the founding of a republic, back to the Marbury versus Madison case. Um, uh, way back in the, uh, in the beginning of our country, where it established the idea of judicial review, that that basically the Supreme Court has final authority on what the Constitution means. Um, so the the branches are not entirely co-equal, but it's but it's pretty close. 
But when it comes to the Constitution, the Supreme Court has the final say. The Supreme Court doesn't have its own army. The Supreme Court um, decision is not self-executing. Uh, um, um, so there has to be the other branches have to uh, back up the court, uh, I guess uh, would be the best way of putting it. And and the public has to back up the court. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important for the court to be respected by the public. Because if the public doesn't respect the court's decisions, then you uh, go down a dangerous path where uh, it's possible that a court's decisions could be ignored. And if the Supreme Court's decisions are ignored, we no longer uh, live in a in a world where the rule of law is paramount, uh, and that'd be very dangerous. So, um, I guess it's possible that if Congress got too much into the court's business, <laughs> the court just might find that unconstitutional, <laughs> and then they would have the final say on it. So, so I, I think that kind of showdown is is unlikely. Um, but anyway, these are these are fun things to think about. Yeah, and, and I've got other questions, but I. Um... It seems like that was the case at one point, and then there there was a change and because the Supreme Court was just – they had way too many cases that they could manage decades ago. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that there are things where Congress can say – or my understanding of it is this is an issue that is, is clearly unresolved uh, from previous Congresses, and, and we want you to take up this issue so there can be clarity. Um, so – but anyway um, – uh, all right. We've got about uh, seven and a half minutes left, so and I've got mm-hmm. lots and lots of questions. Um, <laughs> going going back to what you said a minute ago about judicial independence, there's been a proposal, or I'm sure that this has been a proposal for many, many years, of justices having a term limit of 18 years with relaxed service after that. Um, and that I think assures that they don't have to worry about a career afterwards, but it does um, limit, uh, you know, their their time on the court. Your thoughts on that? It's a really interesting question. Uh, I generally speaking, I like the idea of life tenure because I like um, judicial independence, and I think the quality of the federal courts bears that out. Uh, if you're if you're a uh, I do not mean this as uh, you know an unfair criticism of the state courts, but if you're a lawyer practicing and litigating like I do, um, in some ways you're you're it's a treat to be in federal court as opposed to state courts. <laughs> in federal court, um, neutral enforcement of the rule of law is much more common than in state courts that are often uh, subject to the whims of politics. Let me just put it that way. Um, so I like the idea of judicial independence. I like the idea of life tenure. But at the same time, you do have these situations that pop up every once in a while where federal judges love their jobs uh, a little too much, and they don't know when to step down. And they also um, they also become so invested in their jobs and it's so part of their identity that they can't imagine retiring. They can't imagine sort of stepping away when they've sort of lost their fastball. And maybe cognitively they're not up to the job anymore. And in those situations, there's really no way to get the judges off the bench other than for their colleagues to go to them and convince them to step down. And that's generally what happens. Um, but sometimes judges hang on for too long. 
And so this idea of having a term limit or having some sort of age limit is not something to be dismissed out of hand. It's something to be to be thought about, I think. Um, so I, I see both sides to it. Um, I mean, the way it's set up right now in the federal system is that uh, judges who retire, they can retire, they get their um, their full salary and benefits for life, even when they're retired. So it's not like they have to go out and get another job. Um, there's this thing called the rule of 80, where if you add up your age plus your years of service in the federal judiciary, once you get to 80, I think there may be some exceptions to this, but generally it's a rule of 80. You get to 80, you add up your age plus your years of service. So if you're appointed when you're 65, and then you, um, or if you are 65 and you've been on the bench for 15 years, you can retire. So it's not like we're, um, it's not like it's unfair to say to judges, there comes a time when you need to retire because they're going to be taken care of anyway. But it's a tough call to come up with some arbitrary age range because some people are really, really sharp into their 90s. And other people, uh, you know, have lost a step or two when they get into their 60s. So it's 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 an idea that is talked about, but I don't see a, a movement to change it anytime soon. Okay, uh, Bill, I have two more questions for you. So this next one, if you could, you know, keep it to a minute or two, just because I, sure. I want to end with one. Um, but. It's been interesting to see Chief Justice Roberts' dissent in a few cases. I think he's um, it's 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 unexpected in some ways. Um, and while he didn't dissent in the uh, Allen versus Milligan striking down Alabama's redistricting, um, he sort of went back on where he felt in previous uh, seemed seemed to be changing his opinion on the Voting Rights Act and how they apply that. Um, any thoughts on voting rights and and how the court has recently acted on those? Oh my gosh, I could talk about this for a half hour. You want me to do two minutes on this? Um, I would say that those voting rights slash gerrymandering cases are really, really interesting. I mean, the general idea is that, I think that one in Alabama, there's maybe seven congressional districts, and the allegation is that the Republican-controlled legislature had had pushed a large um, portion of the African-American population into one district so that somehow dilutes their power because if they were to be spread out in more districts, maybe they could have more influence and in, in, on, on more than just one election. That's a really interesting area. Um, what it really comes down to there, and it's a very tough thing for the court to to discern, is that uh, it's it's not illegal for a state legislature to group groups to, or to um, distribute groups in different districts based on politics. There's almost no limit to, to, to that sort of thing. I mean, Republicans try to do it to their, work it to their advantage when they're in control of the state legislature. The Democrats try to work it to their advantage when they're in control. But what's illegal is doing things along racial lines. And so how do you draw that line? How do you determine, well, these districts were drawn this certain way because they were trying to put a bunch of Democrats into that district, or were they drawn that way because you're trying to put a bunch of African Americans into that district? Um, one is one is um, not offensive to the Constitution, and the other is. So it, those cases are just tough cases to get your brain around because so much of it just depends on 
how you're looking, you know, what prism are you looking at the issue from? Uh, and whatever prism you're looking at uh, tends to dictate the outcome. So uh, I was talking too long. So this this last question, uh, maybe you can you can put it in perspective and just sort of rank it from a one to 10, how concerned you are. Um, but we'll go back to the, the title of the show and say, in your opinion, has the Supreme Court lost its way or is it on the right course? And, and how I would rephrase that to you, Bill, is how concerned are you that the Supreme Court is still functioning uh, in a way that gives you confidence or is it worth um, looking into some of these other issues? Is, is it a concern of yours? I think that the Supreme Court is is functioning well, and I'm not I'm not looking at it from a results oriented perspective. Again, I'm looking at fidelity to the rule of law and the 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 process of their decision making. And one of the things about the court that's that's interesting to know is that the justices are very respectful of one another. I might need There's, you to I might need you to just give us the number because uh, the, the number would be I would say. Uh, it, with one being I'm not concerned about it, ten being I'm very concerned, I'm at I'm a two or a three. All right. I would say that uh, thanks, I, I think thanks, that the justices are, are doing a, a heck of a job. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for joining me today. It was an honor. Today's show is, has the Supreme Court lost its way or is it right on course? I'm Dan Richardson. Thanks for listening to KDNK and the Meet in the Middle show. We'll be back in a month.